I'm just fascinated by this notion that is just everywhere now, the so-called woke notion that America is a fundamentally racist country. And yet what I see is all these supposedly repressed races trying desperately to become Americans. Welcome to the American Optimist. I'm Joe Lonsdale. We're excited to have our friend and mentor, uh, Prime Minister Stephen Harper, the 22nd Prime Minister of Canada. We're on number 23 right now, but you were Prime Minister for about a decade. Almost a decade. Uh, February 2006 to November 2015. Awesome. Well, welcome to Texas. Thanks for joining us. I'm always glad to be in Texas and be fully vaccinated and, and living in the land of the free. Well, you know, I wanted to start by talking a little bit about recoveries because, you know, Canada was famous under your watch for having probably the best recovery from the recession in 2008. You guys did an amazing job with you and Finance Minister Flaherty worked with you on that at the time and others. Uh, What are are some of the lessons we can learn right now as, as we're trying to recover from what's going on? Well, look, I think it's first it's important to say, and I can be very critical of governments in Canada, the U.S., anywhere else. I think it's important to understand, first of all, Joe, that this crisis really has been unique and very different and more complicated than the time before. Um, you know, this is a combination pandemic and and economic crisis, the solutions for one often being contrary to the solutions for the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, but look, now that... Our populations are increasingly vaccinated. The focus should be on economic recovery. And um, I think it's actually pretty straightforward, um, but it's the opposite of what governments are doing. The, the solution is to, um, you know, run strong market-oriented economic policy and allow the private sector, which has been reasonably sustained through this, to recover Instead, what has happened, I think it's a fascinating study, you know, in, in, in 08, 09, all of us who were in office did so-called economic stimulus. Mm-hmm. And your country and most countries did extraordinary monetary policy. My, my country didn't for obvious reasons because obviously the crisis was not as deep. Yeah. Um, but after that, we'd done that, what we considered extraordinary policy, then it was how do we get back to kind of a normally functioning economy? This time you have this fascinating thing where... The intervention has been, you know, in global economic terms, it's actually been about 10 times the size. 10 times more government ten, spending. 10 times than, more government spending. Wow, than 12 of what it was. Well, I'll give you a statistic. In Canada, in Canada, and, you know, we thought I had run a large deficit back in, in 2009. Um, in Canada last year, the fiscal year just completed, the deficit of the federal government will be 30% higher than my entire last budget. If I had not raised a dime in revenue in 2015, my, my, um, my budget balance would have been substantially lower than it actually is. That's how much spending governments have done. Canada's wow. a bit of an outlier, but U.S. is a bit of an outlier, too. So the, the levels of spending and intervention Is this par- partially because the parties in charge are just bigger spenders as well, or is it, more, is it, re- is it a good reaction to what's going on? But it's it's not a good reaction. It's been overkill. A lot of spending was necessary, but first of all, it's it's had a different purpose. Remember, the spending back in 08-09 was to quote stimulate the economy. We had a free fall of the financial system. Economic activity was freezing or plummeting. Yep. This time, the purpose of the spending has been to sustain incomes without stimulating the economy. So you want to help people? So people could stop working and not work, and. And we've done that, as I say, at a scale that's far greater because it's, it's, you know, it's cost far more money to keep people 
not working and factories not opening, et cetera, on an ongoing basis. I'm saying there's 9.3 million open jobs right now that people aren't filling, which is a record in the U.S. Exactly. And so you have this extraordinary level, and now you have this extraordinary mentality. I think it's extraordinary where government's just saying, look, this extraordinary economic policy, macroeconomic policy, has saved us from a complete crash during the pandemic. So why can't we just do this forever? This, this is the modern monetary theory. Modern sort of monetary thing. theory, but even even a, it's even a revival of kind of the ultra Keynesianism of the 1970s. Yeah, it, it, it seems like a stupid version of Keynesianism. This oh, is going to take it to an extreme, basically. It is. All of this, you know, look, this is all, not all new. I tell people, for those of us now who have the gray hair and remember, this is all the 19, sort of late 60s, 1970s over again, just at a pace that is incredibly faster and going to lead to bad consequences much more quickly. What, what, what are some of the consequences? Well, the, if you the first and obvious one is inflation. Um, and by the way, um, you know, I just saw the consumer inflation here hit 5%, and that's with all kinds of changes to keep the number down. Of course. All yeah. kinds of t- statistical yeah. changes to try and keep the number down. But that's only consumer inflation. My own view is that we've had inflation for some time now. It's been asset inflation. It's bubbles, bubbles in everything. And now you're getting consumer inflation. And what happens, Joe, I mean, let's say we've been through this movie before. What happens is at some point this requires interest rate hikes. Yep. And as soon as you have interest rate hikes, and the asset you, prices have, will you, have, you have impacts on investment and you have more importantly all of a sudden all this quote affordable government spending is not so affordable um so you know i think i think significant so we're, so we're kind of boxing it we're kind of boxing ourselves in because you, yes. you have to raise rates but you can't raise rates at some point and it gets to be a mess yeah this is look the, the, we're, this is bad economic policy bad macroeconomic policy on an enormous scale yeah. Well, that's, that's a challenge. I, I want to also ask about Canada and the outbreak, because a lot of people at the beginning of the pandemic, they lauded Canada to handle it a little better. Uh, but now it seems pretty clear that Canada is pretty far behind the U.S. and how it's handling all of this. Well, look, I always said that um, I always cautioned anyone who was saying that a certain country or a certain government had it right and others had it wrong. The truth is, all in, in fairness, all governments were feeling their way. They didn't really know how to manage this. And I said, wait until this is all over and we say what, see what the cumulative impact is on terms of both the virus on the one hand and the economy on the other. And that has, still hasn't played out totally. You know, I, I was just writing to some clients this week that, you know, everybody, I don't say everybody, a lot of people have lauded China's success to date mm-hmm. in, in containing the virus and keeping its economy growing. But actually, you now have the Chinese population is now one of the least... Uh, naturally immunized through infections in the world and one of the least effectively vaccinated populations in the world. And actually now the extraordinary level of social and economic control they've had to implement to contain the virus beyond what the Communist Party normally does, they now have is now their only option going forward. Whereas in a country like this where infection rates have actually been high and vaccination rates are now reasonably high. So we're done now. Basically. Yeah, U.S. Yeah. is increasingly done. Whereas China in might fa- have another couple of years of this. Or who in knows? fact, U.S. is one of the few countries that's getting close to this being really over. So time will tell. Um, I'm so Canada. You know, Canada contained the virus early on. Um, but, but now there's more pain later because you still have to. Well, there's pain later because we were so slow in the vaccination. What, what, was that indicative of larger problems? Why were they so slow in, in vaccination? Um, Look, I tend not to comment too much on my successor government. I'll, I'll just say that, um, um, you know, I, 
people in the opposition and people in the drug industry have explained why Canada was so slow in the vaccination. All I'll say is when we were in government, we never had any problem problem making sure we had vaccinations, vaccines well in advance and getting them distributed. So it's just a matter of competent execution. Is, is it a matter also of working well with business or is that, is that? Yeah, to some degree, and the drug industry will say this, poor relations between the federal government and the drug industry have, have not helped. Yeah. Well, let's, let's focus on something optimistic about Canada. Under your leadership, there was tremendous growth in small businesses, in, in innovation centers. You guys right. did a lot with Vancouver. Waterloo became these kind of roaring powerhouses, right? I've hired hundreds of people out of those schools. Right. And actually, we've, we've built, started building businesses there as well in Canada. Uh, is, is, like, what does Canada need to do to continue this and to continue to become? strong in innovation. So, so look, we'll get a second into the kind of micro things we did, but uh, you know, I think the macro things are really important. Just creating a good environment for business with low and stable tax rates and yep. um, you know, and a culture that encourages vis- business and views profit as a good thing under normal circumstances. Yep. That all helps. A special advantage we had in Canada through all that period was our uh, immigration policies, especially are, are far easier ability in the United States to bring in skilled technical uh, people. And that's, I think, still a bit of an advantage for Canada. But that was an advantage to them and, and did encourage some business to come to Canada. We'd also taken another uh, number of measures as a government in the venture capital space to try and encourage that ecosystem, which was very weak in Canada when we took office. So, look, these are the things you need um, you need to continue. Um, um, you know, I'd, I'd also say that Canada, even in some of our our bigger schools, even our, some of our more successful schools in terms of IT people, there's a lot more we could be doing. We could be trying to scale up those programs a lot yeah, more. They could be a lot bigger, a lot more. It. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And in and, and, and dis, and discussing business, uh, we talk a lot about some of the issues with China. And, you know, during this crisis, obviously, there's a lot of problems with supply chains. Who knows what you can right. get from China and India? Uh, you know, on, on, on my side, or what you're getting, yeah, or what you're getting. You know, on my yeah. side, you know, we spent over a billion dollars at HVC building biomanufacturing in the U.S. in Canada recently, just because you know we're worried about where we can get things from. Otherwise, it's a valuable th- expertise to have here. Like, is I mean, I guess more bluntly, is, is globalization over? Are we still are we still going to be working with the whole rest of the world? How, how do we think about these challenges? Well, I don't think global globalization is over. You know, Joe, I wrote a book on this right here, right now, and and the book was essentially talking about the problems of globalization and some aspects of post-Cold War market policy and how we had to adjust them. And I wasn't suggesting it was over. I was just suggesting it had to be a lot smarter. You know, for example, and this is the obvious one when we're talking about medical supply chains, um, surely it always made sense, even in the era era of globalization, even in the coming era, to make sure that critical Security and its supply chains are not in the hands of of countries that are not necessarily friendly to your national security. Yes, um, I mean this is well, they are because Taiwan produces so much that we use for these some of these things. Well, Taiwan, yes, but obviously which not, is not China, not, but then if not mainland China. But we saw this in a whole range of things. You know, for instance, Canada, United States, depending on Russia to launch satellites. I mean, who thought of this kind of stuff? Yeah. Um, you know, all the kind of. At the end of the Cold War, kind of all common sense on economic interaction related to national security just went out the window. And we just assumed everybody either either is a friend or is going to be a friend in short order. So we can trust them with anything. And and obviously, so that that has to change. But I I think so. I I think going forward, there are two things that have to be done. As I say, one, there has to be a realistic assessment about, you know, who are countries who are not 
friendly or dependable on on security matters and in those areas making sure not just that your supply chains are not dependent on those but make sure there is redundancy in terms of sources of supply i don't think it's just a matter of bringing it in bringing it you know onshore sometimes you have multiple other countries you can work with yeah or, or i don't think it's necessary in the government's interest to create even within the country a monopoly supply chain you still want redundancy and you still want of options course. but let's make sure those options are certainly not as a minimum exclusively in countries that are not dependable yeah yeah that, that makes sense. Is 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 Taiwan something you're at all worried about the next yes. ten or twenty years? Yeah, like, I am, it's like should, if if we keep something in Taiwan that's critical, should we also have a backup because China can so easily blockade Taiwan? Or how, how do well, we? Well, look, about this? when I say I'm worried about Taiwan, be clear, I'm not worried about the Taiwanese. No, of course, you're worried about China. China doing something. Yeah, I'm worried yeah. about. Uh, I think there's growing worries in national security circles that, in a much sooner time frame than people once thought, that China may try to actually forcefully take my, my, take my, Taiwan. My, my view on this is that, you know, Sun Tzu said, never interrupt your enemy when he's making a mistake. And I feel like China would be interrupting North American regimes that are quite broken right now. And therefore, they, they, they and it would actually make the regimes look quite bad in North America. And so therefore, they're going to wait to do this. What, what do you think of that? Um, I, I, I'm, look, I'm not betting on it happening in the next two years. But uh, whereas 10 years ago, I would have said the chances of that happening were zero. I no longer think that's the case. But, uh, you know, it wasn't very long ago I would have told you that it was not in the interests of the People's Republic of China to end, to completely end Hong Kong's autonomy yeah. and unique the unique that, nature that of the surprise. Hong Kong system. Yeah. And so, and, and by the way, that wasn't quite the same thing as a seizure because it technically was part of China, but under international treaty and law, China had an obligation to treat Hong Kong as an autonomous region with a completely different system of government. And they flagrantly violated if, that commitment. If, if you were in charge when they had done that, would there have been more repercussions? Um, I would have hoped there'd be more repercussions. Look, I have to qualify that, Joe, because as Prime Minister of Canada, I couldn't have led repercussions. You would have had to work with your but, allies. But certainly to, to I would have urged out. our allies to respond more forcefully to that. I think one of the responses that could have been considered was, you know, if you do not restore your obligations or, or stop stop the transformation of, of Hong Kong, then we will recognize Taiwan as a separate entity. And, and, and you were part of the G7 for over a decade. Right. What should the G7 be doing with regard to this, with regard to make China behave better? Like, how could they work together to actually give us an optimistic solution? Well, that's the key is to work together. The key is to work together. We we have to, you know, I, 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 um, I we're discussing this, as you know, I, I chair a group called the IDU. You spoke at the Global Federation of Conservative Parties, and we're discussing, you know, what kind of, of common approaches could we take to China to incent better behavior and to better protect our own uh, interests? I think we all believe that, you know, unlike the Soviet Union of the Cold War, there are China is not not everything about China is bad and there are opportunities in China. So how can we kind of exploit the the better side of the of the Chinese system while minimizing the risks of the of the, the negative side? And but look, it requires a common approach. Let me give a practical example of that when, you know, the Chinese decide to punish Australia, cut out it, cut its exports, put on tariffs, etc. Yeah. When, you know, they ask reasonable questions about the virus, um, 
what we should be doing as other Western countries is having a shared rebuttal of that, not us all trying to figure out how we get Australia exports taken to us instead. Because that divide and conquer behavior is a really serious long-term problem. It seemed, yeah, it seems like a really messy, silly way to run things that we're just each trying to take advantage instead of working together against them. Yeah, so it does. Look, um, prior to... You know, but let's be clear about the environment. Prior to President Trump, there was not an agreed there was not an agreed posture in any Western country that China was actually a long term threat. Now, it happened to be my view, but it was I can tell you it was not really shared so, by very many people. So your view only became more common after after Trump was. Yeah, well, tr- Trump transformed that view in both parties in the United States. But then, but Trump transformed the view, but he did not actually have a strategy. Certainly, not one involving allies. He didn't. He wasn't able to work with others to get anything yeah. done. So now, you know, the opportunity. Um, is to take, you know, I think Trump's more accurate read of the challenges of the situation and turn it into a common proactive strategy. But, you know, that does require some toughness. I, by the way, I see evidence the Biden administration is is trying to develop a strategy and working with allies. But the real question around the president administration is when pushed, will it, you know, will it yeah. have back? Will it show courage? Yeah. yeah. I, w- I want to talk a little bit more about about America in, in general. We, we started the show because there's a wave of pessimism swooping across America lately. Uh, many of us believe that our best days are behind us. Some people don't even believe America was great to begin with. Uh, they're very skeptical of a lot of the values. Uh, you know, what are the ideas and principles behind America's founding mean to you? I, obviously, you didn't run America. You ran Canada. But what, right. what, what do they mean to you? And what do they mean to the world? Like, like, like is, are these principles important for the world? Well, first of all, when I, when I think about, you know, as, as a prime minister of Canada, I don't think of them in terms of America's principle. I think of them kind of as the common Western and particularly Anglo-American heritage that Canada is a part of. Yep. Um, but first of all, let's, let's be clear what the problem is. Um, you know, the, there are those who have an assessment that, you know, as you say, better days are behind us, that the future is not as optimistic. And that's, you know, that's an assessment that one can reasonably or not reasonably have. But you said another one that America never, those who, America never was very good to begin with. That's the real problem, Joe. The real problem in the West, and let me talk about the West more than America, although, you know, this is the flagship country. The real problem in the West is not um, that our prospects are not good. It's elements in our own countries and our own societies that do not want us to succeed. Yeah. They do not want us to They want to, to tear succeed. down the current system. They want to tear down. Um, the modern left, um, you know, well, called Marxist often, is, is, is not really socialist. It's nihilist. Its ethics are entirely nihilist. And it's all about ripping everything down. Um, I could go into, you know, all the reasons why I think this is so. It doesn't really matter what the explanation for it is. It's all bad and it needs to be fought and opposed. Yep. And, you know, the, 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 the desire we all have to make constant change in our prog- and progress in our societies um, should not have as its, as its assumption that everything is wrong and terrible and awful. Quite the contrary. It's that um, our societies are sufficiently good at their core that this kind of progress is always possible. Yep. And, um, you know, look, I, Canada, the United States, obviously speaks specifically in my own country. And I, I can see lots of things wrong with my own country. And you can see lots wrong with yours. But yet I can tell you, you travel around the world and there's not there's no other time in history and no other place you'd rather be. Um, you know, I say the great contradiction. I, I as you know, I watch American politics 
um, uh, uh, you know, almost uh, in, in, in great quantities. Uh, the reason I do is I, I kind of ignore the politics of my own country because I'm too emotional, emotional about it. So I can be an analyst on U.S. affairs. Um, and so, you know, I watch um, I, I watch American politics all the time and I'm I'm. Uh, you know, I'm just fascinated by this notion that is just everywhere now, the so-called woke notion that America is a fundamentally racist country. And yet what I see is all these supposedly repressed races trying desperately to become Americans and yeah. to join the United States. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's not that there aren't problems uh, historical and present that are real, but the core of our countries are great and they have great futures and there is no alternative the adolescent egos of the woke university crowd is not an alternative governing philosophy for any society. And where, where, where is this liberalism coming from? Yes, you just complicated. You, start, you call it nihilist, but there's also there's this, this. It's new on the left to have this illiberalism, right? And it's something that we didn't really have that as much, or did, or did we always have this massive? Well, it's always been on. It's always been on the extreme left. Uh, you know, the, the, but but, but, it's, but it's kind of, so it's, le, the, it's leaked into the rest of society. What the, what the far left and the far right haven't always have in common? They're both is, illiberal. Yeah, they're both illiberal. But the, but more more of the left seems to have taken. But if you look, you know, go right back to Marx and Engels, it's and of which I'm, I'm actually very knowledgeable. I mean, it was always illiberal. Yeah, it's always illiberal. And, and yep. you know, anyone who says that, you know, Marxism was um, was was distorted into totalitarianism by the Soviets or the Chinese, whoever, is missing. You know, is missing the whole. You read original Marxism, it, the totalitarianism is at its root. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Marx Marx's view was that. Um, and, you know, you hear the same terms thrown around today that his opinions were not opinions. They were science. And anyone who disagreed with his thoughts disagreed on what is science. happening today or what will happen in the future is not merely wrong on the issue. He is going against the fundamental science of humanity. Really, so Marx would say you're going against science when you disagree right. with me a lot. And therefore, and therefore, because because you're simply arguing against facts you know, then, then you, you get to the kind of Soviet mentality that all dissent is essentially a mental illness or something that needs to be reeducated and corrected. Or, and, ba- or banned from social media, and no this, doubt. And this has been, this has been that, that crowd's philosophy, going back, by the way, before Marx to Rousseau and others. And it's become now, you know, since the 60s, very large in university movements and university is, is this, campuses. Are, I mean, are we at a cultural tipping point? This is spread everywhere. Is this going to continue? Are we reaching a peak? Like, how is this going to play well, out? If, if, uh, I, I, I hope it doesn't. If it plays out, our societies fail. So, um, so we have to fight it. Our societies fail. Yeah. So, um, so, so, so how do we fight look, it? I believe, I believe that, I believe that, you know, in, in terms of, there, there is a, there is a, I think, a, it's not maybe as stark as it was in the Cold War, but there is a, a competition of systems right now. There's yeah. no doubt about it. A, a more, not a, not a certain, by no means a truly free market kind of American model, but a market-oriented American model, essentially, in spite of all of its non-market aspects, essentially driven by private enterprise and private innovation. And there is a Chinese model, which is all about state control and using markets as a tool of state control for yep. economic and, and political power. Totalitarian society that lets markets work and uses them. I'm not sure I'd call it totalitarianism, but certainly an authoritarian. authoritarian it's an authoritarian okay. capitalist model. Yep. Um, and and you, you think that's what would come here if, if, if this liberalism wanted well, I th- some I think that is the main challenge. That is the main challenge. That's the main challenge from that's China. That's the main challenge in the United States. And look, what I, what I argue that democracies, I, th- I, th- I, I hope, I believe in, 
I kind of believe, I must admit I'm getting a bit more pessimistic, I kind of believe in hope will triumph. I always tell people this is because democratic societies, democratic capitalist societies, and, and I think the two are inseparable, by the way, um, the reason we succeed over time is not because we ever quite get it right. In fact, our societies are too complicated and pluralistic to ever get it exactly right. Mm-hmm. It's that when we make mistakes, they tend to correct over time. You know, eventually the worst problems. There's, cause- there's, there's self-correcting mechanisms where author- authoritarian societies don't have as many self-correcting mechanisms. No, they have the opposite. Yeah, they, yeah, they, they, the they opposite. double. The governments double down on mistakes. Uh, uh, yeah. Tyrants. Uh, yeah. Authoritarians must double down because the claim to an author- authoritarian's claim to power is that he is specially gifted and always right. As soon as authoritarian says, oh, that was a real screw up, um, that's kind of the end of his, of, of, you know, then somebody else says, well, I'm the guy who will never screw up, not you. So, um, you know, like Mao, Mao Zedong is the extreme example of that. Yep. Just every decade, just kept bigger down mistakes on, on than the decade things. before. Um, and, you know, Deng ultimately corrected that as within the context of that system with, with collective leadership and the experiment with markets, et cetera. I, I was told by my um, mentors that Lee Kuan Yew was a huge influence on Lee, him Lee Kuan Yew was, was, yeah, Lee Kuan Yew is example. Lee Kuan Yew is kind of, cause he's a bit of a mixed model. He is, yeah. But, but Lee Kuan, obviously in a very different environment, Lee Kuan Yew is, um, 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 you know, Lee Kuan Yew is a rare exception. Because, as I say, almost all, dicta- all dictatorships for life almost always end in tyranny and stagnation, neither of which happened with Lee Kuan Yew. Lee Kuan Yew ran Singapore for 55 right. years right. or so. Neither of which happened. Singapore continued its dynamic growth all through his time in office. And, and you know, it's certainly a quasi-authoritarian state, but it didn't get worse on that regard. In fact, it actually got some well, I think it seems like the lesson from the last several decades is that you have to be authoritarian to get past maybe 10 or 12 years in office. That seems, that seems to be the rule. <laughs> maybe. Look, I guess what I was saying, so, so this is why I think democracies will prevail, but let's be under no illusion. We will still only prevail in the end if we make better decisions than they do. And right now, it is. I don't think it's whether it's economics or the virus or anything. I don't think you have to be a really deep political analyst to say that, generally speaking, the Chinas have been making better decisions in the last couple of years than democracies. Yep. Yep. Well, hopefully things will self-correct and maybe there's natural hopefully, limits hopefully to the authoritarianism. Um, but, 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 but remember, that what's so threatening about what I say is the f- kind of far woke left is that it's trying to end the democratic system. I mean, it's not just trying to, you know, pass big deficits in modern monetary theory and new education systems. It's trying to stuff out any opposition to those things. Its goal is authoritarianism. Yes, yeah, so stop, you stop free, freedom of speech, freedom of conscience, freedom of thought, freedom of property. But that, but that, uh, that will not succeed because that authoritarianism is so, is so obviously inferior and incompetent to the Chinese version that it cannot possibly yeah, prevail. That incompetence won't prevail. I tend to think that China is not going to allow enough creative destruction that will be required by the innovation coming in the next 10 or 20 years. And that maybe is an optimistic thing that we will hopefully be able to be better to deal with in North America. Yeah, I'm, um, look, I, I think there's every reason to believe, especially, you know, I come to this country. Um, look, the dynamism of this country, the entrepreneurial dynamism in this country is just impossible to ignore, no matter how heavy handed the, the role of government becomes or large it becomes. This is just such an entrepreneurial culture and so 
freedom-oriented in terms of personal behavior. By the way, I happen to think that this largely explains the rise of China. The rise of China is not explained by, you know, that they came up with a genius political system. It's that Deng Xiaoping did sufficient reform to unleash the naturally entrepreneurial nature of of the Chinese nation. Chinese nation after the Amer- after Americans is the most entrepreneurial culture in the world. Yeah. And he managed to unleash. They're, they're free enough to be entrepreneurial again. With, incredible. They've accomplished incredible and, things. And, and they're able to work with our systems very well as well, of course. Yeah, they've accomplished incredible things under what's still a highly restrictive system. So, um, But look, I, it's hard for me. America has to go a lot farther than it's gone to suppress that side of its so, culture. So, 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 that's, so that's a big challenge is where America is going to go. What, what lessons can we learn? So I mean, you... You, went to, you led two minority governments and majority government yeah. in 2011, and you obviously were working in a somewhat polarized era as well. It's probably even more polarized today, but like, what, what, what are the lessons we could take from that to work in this environment? Well, first of all, in fairness, Canada's political culture then and now is far less polarized than in the United States. And, and the underlying polarization of your political culture, in my view, is a serious problem. I don't really, yeah. you know, how changing. Changing cultures, you know this as an entrepreneur, changing cultures is a lot harder than changing policies. And especially when you're talking about mass cultures historically rooted. U.S. polarization of U.S. society has been, in my observation, growing for at least 30 years. Well, when culture goes wrong with our institutions, we create new ones in the tech world. It's harder to do that. Although, could we be creating new institutions within the U.S. to help with that are functional versus some of the things we have now? Look, I don't know. I'll just say, go back to my Canadian example. I had a less polarized culture. The other thing I had was our system of government. Um, our system of government, I, I, I told Barack Obama when he, our first conversation when he was uh, president and I was prime minister and we were talking about challenges and opportunities in front of us, I told him he then had a majority in both houses of Congress and a supermajority in the Senate. I told him he had less ability to get things done under that, those circumstances than I did with a minority in both houses. In fact, wow. I was not only a minority in the lower house, I was not even the largest party in the upper house, and I still had more ability to get things done. Why is that? It's because in the parliamentary system, you not only have the concentration of authority in the lower house, but it's a double-edged sword. The government either gets to govern or there's an election, which means your opponents cannot, they cannot adopt the strategy of defeating you regardless of the consequences. They have to consider the consequences for themselves whenever they vote things down. So I had the option of a a combination of tools that a president does not have. That makes us more polarized here. Yeah, I had people, I had, you know, I had obviously ways of getting people to vote for me. I had ways of getting deal, but I also had ways of push, of making other people support me whether they wanted to or not. And and, and, And and the president does not have that And you use that to rein in a lot of government spending and be very responsible. Is that something we could do here too, though, or just just with the polarization it's too hard, do you think? Yeah, I, th- I think the pro- I think that I, so. I think on uh, the, the kind of the mismanagement, especially the mismanagement of your fiscal policy. And I really, you know, I know quote America is a reserve currency, but I, like I will assure you that not only can great powers go bankrupt, they have in history, and it's often a reason they cease to be great powers. You look at France in the 18th century; that's essentially what happened. Um, this is not strictly a problem of a presidency or a political party. Both political parties in the United States at the national level 
have been on a trajectory to simply not care about the overall fiscal policy for some time. Yep. The only the only priority, if, if I'm be blunt here, the only priority of the Democratic Party has been to maximize government spending, regardless of how it is financed. Yep. And the only policy of the Republican Party has been to minimize taxation, regardless of levels of spending. Yeah. And. You know, and so the agreement has been: we'll spend as much as possible and tax as little as You'll possible. You'll compromise tax nothing and, nobody, and spend nobody, a lot more. Nobody cares about the deficit because we can apparently borrow without limit. Do you want a lot of dollars yourself, or would you not try to hold too many of those for the next five years? Um, I'm increasingly, um, I'm increasingly, we, I operate a U.S. dollar business because it's a global business. Yeah. Um, but my personal uh, accounts. I, look, I still hold U.S. dollars because the options aren't great, but I do increasingly hold precious you, metals you, you as want, well. You want, you want to diversify yeah, as well. Yeah, I know. I'm I'm very concerned about uh, the U.S. Cannot. I don't know how long it goes on, Joe. I'm just telling you that you, the people believe the United States can continue to borrow countless trillions of dollars at zero percent. Not only do I believe that's not true, I believe that's actually coming to an end much quicker than people think. And what and what turn what turns this around though? What, well, the, I say in, inflation and at some point it's inflation, inflation it'll be painful, inflate, but hopefully we'll learn the lesson. And, inflation, inflation, interest rates begin to rise. Interest rates on U.S. securities begin to rise. Now, what I think the worry is, and I, I hope will be avoided in the United States, may not be avoided in other countries, is once those rates rise. This is, and this is what happened in 0809 in certain European countries, is once those rates rise and there's a huge debt stock, sometimes then markets panic and rates just go astronomical and suddenly you're in a debt crisis. Yep. I don't think the U.S. will hit that wall that quickly, but I think other countries could. And hopefully we'll learn from it. I want to ask you one more question sure. about the Middle East. And you've you are, you led the co- helped lead the coalition to destroy ISIS. You've, right. you've been a big supporter of Israel. You talk a lot. Obviously, you condemn the recent attacks by Hamas and Israel, and you don't yeah. like the moral equivalence of people yeah, saying. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually the same chairman thing. of a our kind of honorary chairman of an organization called the Friends of Israel Initiative, which unites as about uh, about three dozen of us former high office holders, non-Jewish, who work to defend and promote Israel at the international and, and, level. And you seem like optimistic about the Abraham Accords and what was yeah. accomplished with UAE and Israel. And, well, it's the and best story of 2020. You know, as we were all locked in our basements, I guess the other good story of 2020 was how how good video conferencing really had become. <laughs> was, can you imagine? Like, I can tell you, 10 years ago, doing a video conference as prime minister was like pulling teeth. My father-in-law's it's, firm was it was invested in Zoom early on, so they had a good good year with that. Yeah, and, and yeah. you know, say thank God that happened just yeah. in time because otherwise our economies really would have shut down. But um, so that was one good story. But the uh, the real the real good geopolitical story of 2020 was um, not just the Sunni Arabs and the Israelis coming and and with obviously with the West with President Trump, of the United States coming together in a peace pact, but I think the real fantastic story was framing it as the reconciliation of religions, taking that stick away from the jihadists and away from much more malevolent actors, casting the common heritage of Judaism, Christianity and Islam as a uniting factor. And, And, you know, just at a time when, you know, I think one of the biggest threats we face in the world, besides, you know, the different Chinese model, a much more malevolent threat is the theocratic um, nuclear weapons-seeking regime in Iran, and the very fact that there could be an alliance not just built around kind of an alliance of convenience, enemy of my enemy, 
but also around common principles and purpose. When, when you were, I think that was a tremendous story. When you were prime minister, were you allowed to fly from Israel to the UAE, or did you also, did you also have to stop somewhere else? I always had to stop somewhere else. It's a new thing now you're allowed to go between them. Uh, last year, uh, in last fall, I did a little bit of tra- international travel last mm-hmm. year as best I could. Don't tell Trudeau. He doesn't like that. No. Well, <laughs> this was before there was oh, the okay. kind of the outrage about it. Um, no, I, I, I did a business trip to the—I've I've done business in the United Arab Emirates, and I've done business in Israel. And for the first time in my life, I was able to fly to both countries cool. at the same time on the same passport. Very because cool. before you'd use different ones. Before you had to make sure that some didn't see which sticker had what on it. I always so, had the backups. Yeah, yeah, so it's 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 great, and it's it's fully embraced. Like it, it, never, it really is. My it, fr- my friends in the UAE are just so bullish on Israel right now from the top. It's really cool, and I do business in both places too. So I'm excited to see it. it it's very exciting. Well, that's an optimistic. No, thank thank you for your support of Israel all over the years as a Jew I, and someone who's well. Very important I, I to me. think it's, look, I tell people it's not just a matter of a Jew. I uh, being a Jew, I I'm not a Jew. I supported yeah. Israel. Because Israel's long-term interests and threats parallel the interests and threats faced by American and Canadian society. So, so as an American with Western values, it should be important to us if as we, well. If we are not prepared to stand on the front lines with Israel against those fundamental threats to free and democratic societies, then we are jeopardizing our own long-term interests. It was a view that I was very clear on in office and to all of our allies. And by the way, I thought this latest, um, this latest conflict— even though you had the normal, you know, liberal media trying to, you know, urge uh, urge Israel to surrender when it's winning, uh, the normal the normal line, of course. Um, the fact was that there was far more overt support from Western governments for Israel this time than we'd seen in the past. You know, I think of my friend Sebastian Kurz in Austria actually flying the Israeli flag in support of Israel during the conflict with Hamas. You think it's easier to do that with the Abrahamic Accords already having happened? I think that helps. I also think they're even, I think, you know, as Europe has not been as friendly to Israel as the United States or Canada, but I think there's increasing with the rise of jihadism in Europe, there is increasing understanding that you know Israel faces threats that are not that that is it is not not only not Israel's faults they those threats can easily come to their own shores. Well, that makes sense. Well, it's like some of the accomplishments are at least a bright spot in the last year. Yeah, it was a very, it was a very bright spot, and uh, you know, and I say we've got through the pandemic, and let's let's just hope that we let's just hope that we come around on economics. I, I you know, Joe, the way I describe what's happening right now is. What a lot of whether it's you know kind of these hyper Keynesian or bastardized Keynesian fiscal policy guys or the modern monetary theorists, they're trying to convince the population that the fundamental principle of economic science is untrue. The fundamental principle of economic science is that human desires and wants always outnumber available resources, and you have to make choices. They're trying to convince everybody you don't have to make choices. You can have wealth go to work or not work whenever you feel like it. And um, there will be no implications on your taxation or your standard of living or your interest rate or inflation or anything else. It's You can just have whatever you want all the time and production doesn't matter. And that's false. And um, so, as I say, hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll be taught a lesson very quickly. Over time, we'll learn the good ideas we'll learn. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks Mr. for Master. having me, John.